You definitely know about The Dig since you're listening to this podcast, and you probably know about Jacobin, which helps put out The Dig, but you might not know about Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy. Capitalism is once again up for debate. Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy, is a scholarly journal produced by Jacobin Foundation that aims to do everything it can to promote and deepen this conversation. Its focus is, as the title suggests, to develop a theory and strategy with capitalism as its target, both in the North and in the Global South. That's an ambitious agenda, but this is a time for thinking big. You can check out Catalyst's great essays, including contributions from scholars like Mike Davis, and subscribe and print for just $20 for an entire year by going to bit.ly slash digcatalyst. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash digcatalyst. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. What do I do? That is the question that Cornell West, by way of Dostoevsky, posed and then offered some answers to in last week's interview. For this week's episode, I asked Mike Davis the same. What happened and what, then, is to be done. Unsurprisingly, Mike had a ton of insight. But what I want to hammer home here is where Mike ends the interview. We need to create left organizations of organizers. Organizations that can sustain young leftists, recently radicalized, particularly working class leftists, over the years to come. That's an issue that I want to explore in more depth down the road. But for now, I'll leave it to Mike Davis. Briefly, before we get started, obviously The Dig only exists because our listeners, people just like you listening to me right now, support us at patreon.com slash the dig. It's that simple. It's because listeners donate that we are able to provide every single episode free to all, regardless of your ability to pay. And that's very important to us because we want everyone to listen. So please, if you have not done so yet, contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Also, I wanted to encourage you to join a dig book club to discuss the books that I discuss here on the dig with fellow dig listeners and then to meet with the authors of those books on zoom if you are interested visit the dig slash dig hyphen book hyphen club the next dig book club is with wendy brown on in the ruins of neoliberalism an amazing book so read the book discuss it with fellow listeners and then meet wendy brown that is thedigradio.com slash dig hyphen book hyphen club. Okay, here comes Mike Davis, who continues to follow the path he first chose in 1962 when he became a teenage member of the Congress of Racial Equality. 
He has written so many stellar books, including City of Courts, Planet of Slums, The Monster at Our Door, The Global Threat of Avian Flu, and Prisoners of the American Dream. His latest book is Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s, which was co-authored with John Wiener. Mike Davis, welcome back to The Dig. Thank you. 2016 was followed by this somewhat simplistic debate over whether it was racism or the economic situation that got Trump elected, as if the two were mutually exclusive. This time, people seem, even though Biden just won, he won by much less than polls and most everyone one anticipated. And it looks like Democrats will not take back the Senate. So people seem much more focused on the weakness of the Democratic Party to confront an American right that really remains way more powerful and dynamic than many of us had imagined, even as they have a politics that continues to radicalize and a base that remarkably is expanding. What does this election reveal about the state of American politics? Well, let's step back a minute. We usually assume that in periods of great social disorder and human peril, that politics responds uh, accordingly with a new deal, a counter-revolution, a civil war, whatever. And certainly the one thing that most Americans on both sides have agreed on is that the country is facing its greatest crisis since the beginning of the Depression or possibly since 1860. And on one hand, you have a party that's uh, trying to autocratize the political system and return us to the happy days of white power. And then you have the other party with its sentimental promise of returning to uh, the moderate biculturalism of Obama. Neither party is anchored in any kind of real economic rationality. Both look backward toward uh, imaginary past. But nonetheless, uh, we all assume this would be one of the great dramas uh, in modern American history. The polls all said that. Trump's increasingly frenetic attempts to delegitimize the the election uh, seem to indicate that he also believed that there could be a democratic landslide. So 160 million uh, votes. And what we see is almost a photocopy of 2016. The House divided still stands. It's trembled a little. Biden's won by some of the slimmest margins imaginable. Uh, Almost unique historical situation. So the Democrats have the White House. Their House campaign, which Pelosi promised that they would win a dozen or more new seats, lost about that many seats. The most expensive Senate campaign in history, I think the Democrats spent over a billion dollars on senatorial races, now hangs in the balance of two uh, runoff elections in Georgia 
in January, where Republicans probably have the advantage. And so control of the Senate becomes all important. But that is only part of the institution of power in America. I think that Mitchell McConnell is the most ruthless and skillful leader of the Senate since Lyndon Johnson. He filled every single vacancy on the federal court, from district courts to the Supreme Court, locking this in place for a generation. At the same time, in state-level elections, now you'll recall that uh, in 2010, there was this huge backlash against uh, Obama for bailing out the banks and so on. This is the start of the Tea Party movement. But the Republicans who've been preparing for this for 30 years brought together all their billionaires, all their state-level think tanks, the Federalist Society, and they stormed legislatures and gubernatorial mansions all across the country. They won over 700 uh, legislative seats. They took control, total control of 20 states. And that was a census year. And so that allowed them to do the gerrymanders, which have you know, so vexed Democratic voters and people of color in many states, so that the majority of people voting for the legislature may vote Democratic, that the Democrats may win one seat and the Republicans keep three congressional districts. Well, we're back in a census here and legislative elections uh, were again, absolutely important. And strategically, the most important was Texas. And Texas Democrats believed that they could win the nine seats that would give them a majority in the 150-member Texas House. They lost. In Ohio, there were two, Supreme, uh, two state Supreme Court races. And no less than Karl Rove ended up going to Ohio, focusing on these Supreme Court races, because Ohio Republicans conceived it utterly important to maintain their majority. And uh, they did it. I mean, the truth is that the infrastructure of the Republican Party on a state level is incomparably superior to that uh, of the Democrats. And if 2020 looks so much like 2016, it's because Biden used Hillary Clinton's uh, playbook, tweaked it with a few things. You know, he won in Scranton and piled up huge majorities on, uh, in the Northeast and in, in coast. But it was the same suburban-centered uh, soccer mom strategy that failed uh, Clinton so disastrously four years ago. Should we be worried then that 2022 will be a repeat of 2010? <laughs> That's what the Republicans are counting on. I mean, 70 million Trump voters, vengeful and angry, most of them, are looking with absolute uh, delight at the midterm uh, election. But the problem for progressives is 
that we needed a sweeping democratic victory in order to fight for demands to the left of the Clinton-Biden program. Now what's going to happen is from all sides, from his... uh, from New York bankers and Silicon Valley billionaires from Hollywood, every everyone's going to be whispering in his ear, be more moderate. And so what you're going to see, just as we saw back in uh, 1980, or rather in 1992 with the election of Clinton, Clinton didn't roll back Reaganism. He adapted the Democratic Party to it. And this is a very great danger that Biden will attempt to do that as well. Certainly, he can use executive action to uh, reverse numerable decisions taken by by Trump. But without the Senate, it's almost impossible to imagine him making concessions uh, to the left. And of course, during the final phase of the campaign in the second debate, he did everything possible to separate himself from uh, universal health care and a Green New Deal. and uh, I'm the one who beat the socialist. Yes, but I mean, this is, you know, the unreformable cowardness of the Democratic Party in its old uh, mold. And just think what would have happened if Obama hadn't gone on this stunt. I mean, the only two places, and I, I'm, I mean, be missing some really important example here, but the only two places where the Biden campaign really caught fire were where they coincided with pre-existing popular movements of fantastic black mobilization, African-American mobilization in Georgia, and an equally impressive mobilization of Latinos in Arizona is an outgrowth of the long struggle against Phoenix's fascist sheriff, uh, uh, Joe uh, Arpaio. Yeah. So, you know, only when the campaign connected to the energy of, of, of movements did it make dramatic progress. And it's interesting. Uh, I looked in 2016, right after the election, I picked out 15 Rust Belt counties that had voted for Obama, but shifted to Trump. And I looked at the daily newspapers and TV stations in all these cities and went back a couple of years. And I correlated Flynn's defeat in every case to major or significant job losses and plant closures. So yesterday, I went back to the same 15 places to Dubuque, Iowa, Granite City, Illinois, Erie, Pennsylvania, and so on. And in some of these places, Clinton's loss compared to Obama was incredible. I mean, she'd lose uh, some places by 20 or in one case, even 29%. Now, Biden was able to squeeze out about 3.5% in a half dozen of these places. He won back Erie, Pennsylvania, very important, but he lost Mahoning County in uh, Ohio. That's Youngstown. Trump made no progress. In other words, Biden 
there's only one case where Biden actually, and that's uh, Rock Island County in Illinois, where he actually repaired the damage of 2016. His, his small increases in, in Democratic strength didn't, didn't approach uh, anything like a restoration of the Democratic vote in 2016. When you then look at, at Trump, you find something very interesting. His vote has stayed absolutely in place. And if you look at the gains in this election, they can be represented almost exactly by simply adding the libertarian vote in 2016 to his 2016 uh, vote. So he's gained no ground in that. So this is spectacular stasis, stalemate in the Rust Belt. There's absolutely no surge, either red, red or blue. You see working class people voting for both parties. You see various sorts of capitalists heading in different directions, depending on the industry or often depending on any particular lumpen billionaire's entirely idiosyncratic ideology. If you were going to give this moment an 18th Brumaire sort of treatment, what peering through, I'm going to put this simplistically, all of this superstructural noise, which defines how politics is typically covered in this country, what does this election reveal about American political economy and, and class conflict? It reveals the Democrats' inability to speak directly to the concrete circumstances of large part of the working class. And the election in the end, if you want to see it in very general terms, Biden ran on the pandemic, Trump won on the economy. And Trump had the support of the third, third, quarterly, uh, third quarter job reports and a big uh, gain in jobs in October. While on the other hand, Biden had totally failed, I think, to tie jobs to the pandemic. And so it was easy enough for Trump to tell people that, look, he's going to lock down the country and you're going to lose your jobs. And in fact, many of the jobs that were regained in October are, are totally vulnerable to a new lockdown. I mean, the Democrats had two great opportunities to make the politics of the pandemic about jobs. One was back in April when there was a labor uprising against the unsafe conditions in hospitals and in warehouses. OSHA, responsible for workplace safety, run by uh, Scalia's kid, uh, Eugene, processed none of the several thousand uh, complaints uh, that reached them. People were dying. So it would have been easy enough for the Democrats to say, look, we want to put everybody back to work. But to do that, we have to ensure that you can be safe in the workplace. They really didn't do that at all. And now this fall, what Biden should have said, in my opinion, instead of referring to the millions of green uh, green energy, new jobs, which is just a total abstraction. People are living in very concrete circumstances, looking at the closed mall down the street, 
are wondering if the remaining factory is going to leave town or not. And this just seems like a sheer fantasy. So again, the campaign had the great opportunity to say, because Trump has totally failed to stop the pandemic and indeed become the major vector of it, he's going to end up taking a job away. The second wave is going to erase all these gains. That's why you have to put us in power. But separating the pandemic and jobs, and I'm sure there's some um, Democrats who didn't do this, but it was the motif of the, of, of the national campaign. And that was deadly. And that's why it's hard in some ways to draw lessons out of this. I mean, polls have told us for the last four years that the hardcore Trump base is somewhere between 39 and 44% of the population. Well, he got about 48% or so of, of the vote. And I wonder if that, that difference, the seven or 8%, which equals probably six or 7 million votes, was not an expression of people making this Sophie's choice of income over 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 health. And that's what seems really twisted about this to me is that Trump's disastrous handling of the pandemic created this false trade-off between public health and economic well-being. And then in response, Biden failed to provide any robust alternative vision that pushed beyond that false trade-off between locking down and reopening the economy. And so that binary was really what was presented to voters as a zero-sum choice. It was a political terrain created by Trump that Biden then played upon. Yes, you put this very eloquently. But there's also the long-term problem that not only the Democrats, but most social democratic parties in Western Europe and the Labour Party in Britain have been generally very successful amongst young college-educated voters working in the information sector. They've had absolutely nothing to say to people in the north of England or the rural or the Pas-de-Calais in, in France, traditional industrial areas turned into rust belts. The reason that Bush did, was able to pull victory out of a hat in, in 2000 was, I think, best represented by West Virginia. Tom Frank wrote a, a, a really well-known uh, book called uh, What's the Matter with Kansas? arguing that, that people were culturally captured in a way that they were actually voting against their economic interests. And I kind of disputed that, and I took the case of West Virginia. So in West Virginia, actually, I'm talking about uh, 2004. So Kerry goes to Charleston, goes to Mingo County, wherever he went. I, I don't know. He, he visited West Virginia very much. And again, he can only make these abstract promises about prosperity. Now, local people in the Rust Belt have seen what this means. If there are, in fact, new jobs created, they go to people who move in from out of state or to college-educated people. They don't replace the unionized or high-wage jobs 
that are gone. Bush comes to West Virginia and says, I'm going to slam a tariff on steel. Okay, we're going to revive the American steel industry. He really didn't mean it in the long run. But, you know, that ignited big turn to the Republicans that now seems to be permanent. I mean, West Virginia was the most democratic state consistently in congressional and presidential elections throughout the 20th century. Right now, Biden got 26% of the vote in West Virginia. And a lot of that was only thanks to the heroic teachers who went on strike last year. Democrats have totally lost the, the state. They've totally abandoned Appalachia. Puerto Rico has been worse treated than even New Orleans during uh, uh, Katrina. Did we ever talk about the disasters in Puerto Rico or the fact that 51% of children in San Juan live in poverty? No, of course not. Which is morally monstrous, but it's also electorally stupid given the changing demographics of Central Florida. And given the fact that the Republicans have, have long embraced the full 50-state strategy, and they've built this local and state-level infrastructure that's so superior to the Democrats. I mean, here in San Diego, we, have a, we had a, a couple of districts with big Republican majorities. And in order to uh, get money from the Democratic Central Committee, the county committee here from labor, you had to raise at least $65,000. And candidates couldn't do that. So they were ignored. They just hung out too uh, dry. There's almost no point you know, to running. I mean, Democrats have abdicated constituencies that they once totally owned because of their failure to grapple with the concrete problems of working people in this country. Now, the difference between today and 2000, or the wave of factory closures in the 90s, or even before then, was that a new generation has appeared, full of kids from immigrant families, working class families, who've made great sacrifices, sent them to college, and they leave college only to find out that it's all been a mirage. They end up in the contention economy. They end up uh, working for Uber. Or they may get a job as school teachers only to find they can't probably never be able to afford a house if they live in California uh, or Washington. And what we've seen, and I think the material basis in many ways, for the Sanders insurgency was the combination of downward mobility, broken dreams, and a reaction to the wholesale assault and all the achievements of the civil rights movements and other equal rights struggle. I mean, my kids, my four kids, my two youngest kids are still in high school, San Diego High School. It's an inner city high school. I'm stunned by their friends, how radical. They are. Now, my, my kids, of course, you know, they grew up in a red household. You'd expect them to uh, probably be, you know, to, to mirror that background. But their friends are, you know, working class Mexicans, Somali, black, black kids. 
and tremendously devoted to Sanders. I mean, kids were crying uh, when he conceded. That activism was then saved and recycled by Black Lives Matter. My kids were going to the Black Lives Matter protest. They were incredibly enthusiastic. But of course, what's happened now is a great depression amongst that crucial generation X. Because even with Trump gone, Biden is not going to satisfy any of the things that they fought for in the Sanders campaign. I mean, Trump 2020 was about law and order and against Black Lives Matter in a similar way that Trump 2016 was about building the wall and about attacking Mexicans, attacking Central Americans, attacking Muslim immigrants. Uh, I was discussing this with, with Cornel West yesterday. Different themes, kind of same same logic. Why was law and order effective at producing so many votes for Trump? And how, what does that mean about the balance of forces between BLM and the reaction against it? If you have Trump running a BLM as a terrorist group campaign and doing as well as he did, and Biden only speaking in the most rhetorically, you know, superficial ways about the movement demands. Well, of course, Trump reached into the garbage can. From 1968. Every craven <laughs> every strategy and, you know, rhetoric he could, you know, uh, he could find about crime, the inner city, uh, the blacks are going to come to your suburb. And the su- uh, end your suburb, <laughs> if only. <laughs> and I, I think that worked very well with the already converted, with the hardcore base. Beyond that, I'm not sure how effective it was. And one thing that startled an awful lot of people is Trump's increase in support from black males and from Latinos. Now, if you look at Florida, it's no surprise that the, Venez- the wealthy Venezuelan and Cuban exiles could drastically cut the Democratic margin in Miami. Yeah, it's like, it's like a melting pot of transnational right-wing reaction. Exactly. But what absolutely threw me was what's happened, what happened in the border counties of South Texas. Now, Republicans and Democrats in Texas have long agreed that South Texas, the border counties, are the key. The, the Republicans at all costs have to reduce turnouts and prevent the Democratic vote from increasing. It holds about balance of power in Texas. Beto Rourke and Julian Castro begged Biden to come to Texas, and he didn't, just like Clinton didn't go to Wisconsin or uh, Michigan for four years ago. But what happened in Texas is very perplexing because in places like from Brownsville to uh, McAllen, the Rio Grande Valley, Laredo, Eagle Pass, the Republicans doubled their vote. They even won one county that's 80% Spanish surname. And we're talking about the border. These are the people that Trump has incessantly demonized as racist, as thieves in the, the night. I mean, they can look out their windows and see the encampments across the river of, of the refugees who are trapped along the border. And the area, if you know South Texas, the border at all, 
has an extraordinary history of insurgency and, and resistance from the 19th century onward. So how did Trump grab all these votes? And the answer, I think, some people argued that it was Catholicism. And reading the National Catholic Reporter, which is the very progressive Catholic journal, and right now is uh, trying to understand what happened to the Catholic vote, abortion doesn't seem to be the key. Other people suggest it's the fact that the Border Patrol is a major employer in Mexican-American communities from, you know, El Centro to Brownsville. I don't really know, except that the Democrats totally neglected, as they have in every election, efforts to campaign and to connect local issues to national issues in South Texas. By contrast, of course, in Arizona, we saw the opposite. We saw a vibrant uh, movement deeply rooted in the community, struggling with Joe Arpaio, and it has managed to turn Maricopa County which has been one of the great Republican fortresses, that's Phoenix, uh, blue this time, although they probably had some help from dissident Mormons. I think it's a large minority of Mormons don't, don't like Trump at all. So that may have played a role, but it was basically the movement that decided the election and the movement that has brought Georgia down to, uh, to the wire, defying every prediction and expectation. How does that comparative analysis, which I think is going to be such a key one to really think about in the coming months and years, comparative analysis of what happened in South Texas and what happened in Arizona, how does that force us to rethink how race and racism operates in this country? Because especially a certain sort of liberal identitarian discourse in recent years has put forward a framework for thinking about race that is remarkably essentialist? Well, I have to say, I mean, my position on identity politics is this. What people who oppose identity politics are really talking about is they oppose equal rights. They oppose, you know, equality. Scoop, identity, that's what it's really about. It's about the struggle for equal opportunity. And the cultural identitarian part of it is not nearly as significant as I think people imagine. But you compare South Texas to Arizona, and the difference is a movement. If, for example, I mean, South Texas, particularly the uh, quarter from Brownsville, you know, is agricultural country. It's, it was virtually medieval, feudal, when I uh, visited in 1967, when I was working for SDS in, in South Texas. If you had a struggle going on there, it would have made a difference. One of the striking things about this alleged election is the absent presence of labor in the presentation of the of, of the campaign. It was even worse than 2016. And of course, because of the pandemic, unions could not make their traditional contribution canvassing the boat. They've always been the essential, essential army, but it's also a reflection of the state of the labor movement. And an issue that 
Democrats don't ever talk about again, which is you want to get to the to the essence of employment problems in this country. You have to talk about expanding public employment on a very great scale. And again, the Democrats have adapted to the demonization of the public sector, you know, by the Republican Party and by Democrat conservative Democrats. That's really the essential way forward. And uh, I'm I'm not sure I understand. And we talked about this last time. What the new the Green New Deal is supposed to be, but the government has to. The public sector, and we of course have to envision a different kind of public sector, democratically controlled, not manipulated by corporations and banks, has to be the the major future employer if you want to see anything like a decent society. Because we're in a very strange situation. I mean, people went to bed in March 2020. The economy seemed to be humming. They woke up the next day, it's 1933. And this is going to happen again in the next month or two as the job figures go down again and people are confronted with how ephemeral this recovery actually is. In 1994, a not insignificant minority of Latino Californians voted for Prop 187, I believe about a quarter. And Hispanics in El Paso at the same the same year, I believe, we're cheering the border crackdown of Operation Hold the Line. So obviously race doesn't make political ideology in some sort of automatic way. In in terms of so in terms of this Arizona versus South Texas question, do you see this as just a democratic failure or is it or is there something about Trump's obviously extremely racist nationalism and particularly kind of the civilizational qualities of it and also as you mentioned referring to the large number of Latinos who are border patrol agents on the border, just the kind of subjectivity making of being a law enforcement officer. Has that all made Trumpism for all of its extreme racism perversely more racially inclusive (laughs) than we might have imagined? Well, that's an interesting, even fascinating speculation, but I don't think so. For instance, back in the uh, uh, the 80s, Proposition 187, that kicked undocumented kids out of schools and taken away all any kind of benefit. Well, I mean, it produced one of the greatest mobilizations in the history of California against it. In Texas, you're dealing with something uh, different. I would argue that in Texas, where so many jobs are still connected to agriculture for Latinos, the competition with immigrants is is much higher. I mean, this was the case in the early days. I mean, the farm workers union under Cesar Chavez wanted immigrant restriction of for years because they wanted to stabilize conditions in the work workforce. They didn't want the other side of the border being a labor reserve army working on behalf of employers, you know, replacing local workers with. Uh, uh, with new people. And this is an old story in American history, the pitting not only ethnic groups against each other, but dividing an, an ethnic group between the, you know, the already arrived and the ones, the new arrivals. The, the great failure of political analysis these days 
is it doesn't start from the reality of how people actually calculate their actions and strategies in life. I mean, when you sit down on the table with all the bills laid out in front of you, okay, that's pretty damned important. And this may sound like, you know, archaic economic materialism. So be it. I once uh, had an argument with a famous Marxist, somebody I actually adored, Ernesto Luclau. And he was, he and his wife were the, the authors of this tremendously powerful Chantal idea that, you know, was all about identity politics and culture and, and, and so on. And so we were in a debate one day and I said, look, I'm going to be a crude materialist and determinist. And let's see what that explains. And then whatever's left over, you know, <laughs> that's yours. You that to explain. But so many people, I mean, there's a real absence of social reportage and detailed analysis, despite the tremendous number of left-wing, you know, websites and so on. Remember, this election occurs in the background of the death of American journalism at least of, uh, uh, of print journalism. And people don't know how the other side lives or how people just like them live a couple of states away. I mean, there's some obsession, exceptions to this. I mean, African-Americans have very clear ideas of the general condition across the country. Latino is an identity that has been made for the convenience of uh, the census and of, of, of politics. At the end of the day, what does a rich Venezuelan have in common with a drywall worker in California, except the common surname and maybe maybe the you know the language? But everything is interpreted these days through you know vague abstractions in terms whose uh, applicability is very, very limited. Let me just give you one example. Now we talk about there's the, the core city, the metropolis, the suburbs, and then there's the rural area. And the Democrats are storming the suburbs, but the Republicans have tightened their control over the rural area. Well, that's not an accurate description of American economic and social geography. The fastest growing factor in uh, politics right. have been the excerpts. The McMahon mini McMansion excerpts. Yeah, I mean, so if you go to, um, well, you can go almost any big city. But say you go to uh, Dallas-Fort Worth, and what's happened there in the last 10 or 12 years is that the inner ring suburbs have become more diverse, more democratic, wealthier whites. And we should never forget that much of the geographic movement in this country changes the residence is, at least in part, white flight. So the upper middle class moves out to the countryside, to plan gated communities, or if there are amenities around like lakes, forests, uh, ocean views, uh, built homes like that. And exurbanization has been a more important trend than suburbanization or gentrification in inner cities over the last decade or more. Uh, some people would say 
much longer. And it's the Xers, above all, that are the bastion of Republican power and of the far right. But we lack in the kind of political discourse that goes on uh, daily any recognition that there's a difference between an exurb and a rural area, an exurb and a suburb. And we overlook the kind of geographical set separation of races and classes that's been going on and in, in accelerated during the Obama years. You know, I see this very clearly in California. I mean, there's a huge outmigration of whites who can afford it to picturesque Southern Utah, to the parts of the Northwest, Idaho, uh, maybe over to Arizona. This is sprawl in its, in its worst form. It's sprawl in, in its most toxic dimension. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Corona, Climate, Chronic Emergency, War Communism in the 21st Century by Andreas Malm. The economic and social impact of the coronavirus pandemic has been unprecedented. Governments have spoken of being at war and find themselves forced to seek new powers in order to maintain social order and prevent the spread of the virus. This is often exercised with the notion that we will return to normal as soon as we can. What if that is not possible? In Corona Climate Chronic Emergency, Leading environmental thinker Andreas Malm demands that this war-footing state should be applied on a permanent basis to the ongoing climate front line. He offers proposals on how the climate movement should use this present emergency to make that case. There can be no excuse for inaction any longer. Corona Climate Chronic Emergency War Communism in the 21st Century by Andreas Malm Out now from Verso Books what does it mean that more educated and affluent white people often referred to too simplistically by the shorthand of suburbanite when some are suburbanites, some are exurbanites, some are urbanites, that they continue to move to the Democratic Party, though not as U.S. House results show in the numbers that the Democrats were hoping for. And this is a long running shift, obviously. Professional suburbanites in the Metro Boston, in places like Metro Boston, began moving towards Democrats decades ago. And that that uh, kind of dukakisization of the party had an impact on, on the party. What does it mean now that this constituency that in many cases has material interests so contrary to those of working class people is becoming so core to the Democratic coalition? And I'm thinking about the sort of liberal affluent neighborhoods where you see those these ubiquitous signs that I'm obsessed with that say, in this house, we believe. Have you seen those? No, I, I haven't here, but gentrification is alive and well here in San Diego. Barrio Logan, which is the traditional Mexican community here, has been a community that has fought year after year against freeway construction and bridges that would destroy the community. Now, my wife is a Mexican artist, and she and I have uh, disagreed over this for a long time. But younger Chicano, Mexican 
artists and, and craftspeople. And moved to Vario Logan. It's, it's right next to downtown. It's a very attractive, wonderful uh, uh, neighborhood. And I've been very opposed to this because, as we all know, it's the artist and the, you know, 20-something creative class that are always the inadvertent foot soldiers of gentrification. Or in this case, gentrificación. Exactly. So in other words, I mean, I, we can say that politics, the language of politics is uh, out of step with the reality of social geography. And the Democratic Party, of course, and again, Tom Frank wrote a great book about this using Washington, the Bellboy as an example, is really two parties, or I would say possibly uh, uh, three. I mean, you have the left, traditional working class Democratic voters, and then you have the so-called new class. The thing that's changed is that so many people are falling out of the new class. And this is most dramatic in the case of kids who are first-generation college graduates and cannot fulfill their family dream because there simply aren't niches uh, to fill. But this divide within the new class or the, or the, the, the PMC or or whatever you have you have these people who are downwardly mobile that you've talked about that I think totally correctly are going towards drifting towards Bernie and are really the material basis for the Bernie phenomenon in many ways but then you also have people uh, from the new class who used to be Republican voters who are now becoming the new kind of core to the new democratic establishment what does that shift mean well i mean you see this in uh, in silicon valley which spectacularly supported uh biden First of all, the workers, employ, employees came out in mass, but a big new group of wealthy Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who had not been active in politics before, some of them even probably d- donated to the Republican Party, mobilized tens of millions of dollars. And these people and their counterparts in, in, in Hollywood control the Democratic Party in California. Remember, it's the San Francisco dynasty that rules the Democrats uh, in Congress. And as people know, particularly those who've been fighting these same people at the local level, when you know the city council races or when these people were mayors, the Nancy Pelosi's and uh, you know, and so on. The politics can be very vicious and the most obvious ruling class kind of way. Now, a question you need, we need to ask ourselves, so what's going to happen in the next year or so inside the Democratic Party in Congress? I mean, the Democratic Party is, is an entity held together with uh, rubber bands and band-aids, okay? There's a third party being born inside of it, but as the traditional mainstream Democrats accommodate more to the right turn, the gulf between the two, two sides is going to become even greater. And uh, this faces uh, DSA members and like with this question, do you stay in the party and run progressive candidates against all the mainstream candidates? Or do you lead where you can have a platform that's identical to your beliefs and your analysis. 
I don't have an opinion on this because we have to wait and see uh, what happens. But it would have been very much different if there indeed had been a democratic landslide. This would have empowered the progressives to boldly fight for their agenda inside the party and in, in Congress. But that's not the situation we face today. Before we get any further, one thing I wanted to ask you about what happened in, with South Florida that I think is this really remarkable internationalization of the American right, unlike anything that I think I've seen in my lifetime. And you're always saying, you make a point of emphasizing that the left, the U.S. left, is nowhere near inter- internationalist enough and that we need to extend our struggles and build ties across borders. What what can the left learn then from what just happened in Miami-Dade? Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, we have to do two things. First of all, we have to address the orphan constituencies of working class people, Democrats in this country. And I'm talking about Puerto Rico. I'm talking about Indian country. I'm talking about South Texas. And I'm talking about Appalachia, which is the greatest concentration of white poverty in the United States. And nobody's really talked on a national scale about the crisis in Appalachia since Lyndon Johnson's period in the great, the great society. Democrats have totally abandoned the area. Every single Appalachian county voted for Trump this time around. And this is not inevitable. This is not necessarily dictated by racism or by uh, uh, religion. It's dictated in, by economic crisis, which has been resolved by the, you know, the rhetoric and categories of the right, because, again, Democrats can't be concrete about it. But the role of the left has to be internationalist. We are becoming more and more introverted, ignoring, you know, the great human needs and and disasters in the world. And the, the specific case of this is Trump totally detached the United States from medical aid or cooperation with the global South, totally repudiated it. What will uh, what will Biden do? What will how will the vaccines now be distributed? The US boycotted also the consortium that was set up by the WHO to ensure that uh, poor countries got more of uh, uh, the vaccines. These questions constantly arise, but in a part of it's incapable of saying the the words Puerto Rico or or Appalachia. It's not surprising that the, the foreign policy in the Biden camp remains the same as in the Obama administration and the Clinton administration. An Atlanticist Cold War mentality that is often so close to the Republican point of view. I mean, remember, it was this, I thought, somewhat spectacular moment when Trump, during the uh, second debate, or maybe it was the first, challenged uh, Biden on uh, China. And Biden, you know, of course, was upping the ante all the time about what, how he would punish China and so on. And Trump just looked at him and said, well, you know, so you've accepted our ideas and our, our, our policy. Remember, foreign policy was hardly debated at all. 
nuclear disarmament in the world were, according to the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, the dangers are, are greater than any time since the early 60s. Was on like a minute to midnight or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. They have this famous doomsday clock. But I mean, the one immediate thing that connects struggles of American working people to countries in, in the hemisphere and elsewhere is, of course, the struggle over immigration. The, the uh, Stephen Miller Nazi-like immigration policies occurred, of course, in a context where the Obama administration had up deportations to an unprecedented uh, level. The problem here is you don't make clean breaks. You don't restore what's been destroyed. You offer partial members. You make adaptations. And now that the mainstream Democrats see this ferocious Trump nation, even if Trump is gone, the tendency to make concessions and uh, horror of horrors, you know, Biden happily cooperating with Mitch McConnell if the Republicans win the races, you know, in Georgia. I think radicals have to almost on a daily basis rethink their relationship to the uh, mainstream Democratic Party and the institutions and interests that comprise it. A lot of us always said after 2016 that Bernie would have won. Do you think he would have won this year? And do you think he would have not only won, but perhaps done a better job of boosting down ballot candidates than Biden who ran such an anemic campaign and really failed to offer much of any sort of alternative vision beyond not being Donald Trump? I, I think that the Sanders campaign made a dreadful decision where in these meetings with the Biden camp, they didn't hold out for Medicare uh, for all. That should have been non-negotiable. It could have unified around the campaign without uh, centering that. I mean, this I know people, Sanders supporters, who were crying to see that uh, unnecessary concession. The institutional power of the Republicans, of the far right, and again, I emphasize on state level and in local governments, is so great that I think I think Sanders would have, would have done spectacularly well in some of the constituencies. It didn't respond at all to Biden. But I'm not sure he could have won. And I'm not sure we wanted him to win. Because he would probably have inherited still a Republican uh, Senate. He would be in the midst of both the pandemic and what seems to be the beginning of a new depression. And he would have had, he and Elizabeth Warren, you know, had vigorous, good answers, you know, policies, but I doubt they had the means to implement them. Uh, it's sometimes better for the left to sit out the crisis in opposition than join reformist attempts to uh, resolve it. I know this is what I'm saying is going to irritate, you know, a lot of people. Well, it echoes an insight from Marx, reminds me of this line of his. He, he, said, he wrote, quote, the worst thing that can befall a leader of an extreme party is to be compelled to take over a government in an epoch when the movement is not yet ripe for the domination of the class which he represents and for the realization of the measures which that domination would imply. 
Marta, the leader of the Mensheviks, repeatedly quoted this to Lenin in the days before the October Revolution. I mean, there's some some questions and paradoxes that you you can't avoid, where you can't be certain that you're right. You have to look to the available forces. Sometimes you have to sacrifice power in order to ensure that your ideas endure. I'm not one of these people who believes that, you know, there's something like the motor vehicle code for the left in politics. You know, the Democrats never support the lesser evil and so on. I mean, Lenin would have scoffed at, at, at that. But what I've been saying is that by next spring, I think progressives in the broad sense need to completely reappraise their relationship to the Democratic Party. I'm not saying necessarily they should break with it, but they need to reappraise it. And secondly, they have to understand the illusion that the Sanders campaign perpetuated, which was that the movement and the political campaign are co-equal. One strengthens the other. Now, the scariest book for, for leftists I've, I've ever read is Michael's uh, book on political party. He was a, a German social democrat. And in uh, 1906, I think it was, the social democrats made a huge breakthrough, became the largest party in the, the right stake. And this created uh, thousands of jobs for social democrats. It instantly kind of bureaucratized the party. It changed the interests that propelled decisions with inside the party. Uh, it strengthened the power of trade union bureaucrats. So he raised this question, does the left in political office and a system still based on private property, on capitalism, does it ever actually strengthen the party outside the parliament, at the workplace, in the streets, in the community? And this is, again, what happened in, in, in January. You know, people wanted to fight on. And instead, there was a tremendous demoralization, which thankfully then, Black Lives Matter recycled into activism and, and, and kept, I think, thousands of young people still in the struggle. I wonder what's, what's going to happen now. Again, and since I measure the world by the two teenagers I, uh, I live with, my youngest daughter, who, you know, was totally part of the burn and then Black Lives Matter, is now so absolutely cynical. I can't, uh, she, she can't even imagine uh, voting when she turns 18 or even joining a, a, a political group. So this has to be a major concern that we don't let the Biden victory demobilize forces in motion. And we have to provide roles uh, to retrieve the energy that's been displayed through the Sanders campaign, through Black Lives Matter, through all the protest movements. You noted correctly that the end, the premature end of the Bernie campaign was incredibly deflating for so many young people who were deeply committed to that campaign. And that fortunately, the second iteration of Black Lives Matter exploded not so long thereafter to recapture those energies. 
And my question is, is there more of a connection between the end of the Bernie campaign and the redirection of what were notably extremely multiracial protest energies towards Black Lives Matter when it did explode? My my sense, and I don't know if there's ever any data that could prove this, is that that this question of every so many people have been asking and this phenomenon so many people have been noting of what are all these white people doing in the streets in such large numbers protesting for black lives i think one answer to that question is that those young white people were bernie voters yes i think that's true though everybody talks about it in black and white terms here in san diego at least but i think also throughout california it was impressive within you know huge number of young Chicanos, uh, uh, Mexicanos who were in Black Lives Matter and who didn't get ruffled by the sense that they're only talking about Black people, not us. No, no, they fully understood and, and supported it. I mean, if you look at AOC, what's her coalition, if, if not the long Dream Four Rainbow Coalition? It's proven very frustrating to create a basis for more clearly class politics. The material conditions exist in the fact that, uh, uh, I mean, just look at the explosion of poverty in this country and look at the future uh, ahead of us. I mean, there's not going to be a period like the 1950s or even like, uh, you know, the 1970s. It's, you know, there are no doldrums ahead of us. The winds, the historical winds are going to blow very hard and maybe even become hurricanes, because that's the situation that people are being uh, left in. I mean, my God, here in California, I mean, you know, (laughs) my family business has been going very well because we're living essentially in the the book of Revelations. Look out the window, the, uh, the landscape is burning. But the question is how to bridge the gap and the need for an organization or better organizations of organizers, okay, united around clear principles. I'm not recommending a return to democratic centralism, uh, which favors only the rule of party, uh, you know, party leadership. But we need a tougher, better organized forms of organization with clear class politics and able to maneuver creatively. I mean, many of these protests I, I see these days, I mean, they're incredibly creative, but sometimes they, they, they miss the essential thing. A couple of years, uh, four years ago, when I was still teaching before I retired at UC Riverside, some of the uh, Occupy protesters came out from downtown LA to protest on campus as a meeting of the border uh, of regions. And they were completely peaceful, but the campus police overreacted. They didn't have a clue what to do. So they come out with tear gas canisters and, you know, pepper spray, all this stuff, big batons. And what happened, uh, and they surrounded this group, what happened then is hundreds of students who are merely, merely spectators begin to side with the Occupy protesters. I mean, you could see there you know, the atomic, uh, the the politics of radicalization on the molecular level. And I thought to myself, man, this is, 
this is a great a great movement here. It opens up new possibilities, except that the protesters had no leaflet to hand out. They didn't say, people, if you support us and believe in us, we're meeting on so-and-so day. There, there was none of that. There was just a protest with no design for organization. And remember that the purpose of protest, above all, from a traditional socialist standpoint, is to organize people and allow people to make full commitments as the life circumstances uh, you know, allow to their ideas and struggle. So what is it that's gonna build the bridge between these, you know, these two great uprisings in the Sanders campaign and Black Lives Matter and the kind of class politics necessitated by the crisis, which will propel millions of people. But who's going to win win them? I mean, this election showed that Trump still had the ability to win over large numbers of people. And uh, people may disagree with me. I mean, they may say it's a racist backlash. But like I said, I thought the difference between the hardcore, the ideological Trump supporters and the Republican vote are the people reacting to economic circumstances when the Democrats are unable uh, to give concrete answers or solutions to problems. You mentioned your teenage daughter, once so full of Bernie enthusiasm and then BLM, that she's now deeply pessimistic. And this is something I've been thinking about a lot, including because I interact with Zoomers as in my organizing life, this, this affective and ideological roller coaster that recently radicalized young people have been on. Are these bigger and more organized left organizations? Is this the solution to what I worry could be for many Zoomer radicals, premature burnout or ultra leftism or just nihilistic disaffection? Well, I don't think what's needed exactly uh, is to try and make DSA a mass party or follow the example of something like Podemos. Uh, in Spain. I'm talking about building groups that sustain people uh, in struggle with much clearer and class-conscious programs without in any sense abandoning the demands to Black Lives Matter or other struggles. I'll, I'll say this on air for the first time. I remain a communist with a small c. And I see no way to get around this problem of the need for an organization of organizers, except to accept some of the lessons of the past and reject others. A big amorphous party or group needs inside of it more organized people who can fight with one another and present alternative paths. Now, in the past, this has too often meant some cadre group trying to control take over the organization, manipulate everybody. Bob Vakian and the Revolutionary Communist Party kind of stuff. No, Chairman Bob. Yes, wherever he is right now. Some of my best friends uh, suffered huge personal defeats by following his path in the 1970s. No, I mean, the, 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 the questions and obstacles are huge. How you build basically a democratized, cadre organization, because it has one other task to fulfill. Otherwise, it can't exist. It has to give poor kids, working class people, 
a basis for being for sustained activism. It means you got to deal with questions of everyday life. I mean, so many of the organizations on the left, I mean, you know, trust fund kids, or, uh, people know they can eventually fall back into a decent career, you know, can become full-time organizers. But the most militant people on the streets have to answer questions every morning, how they're going to eat, what the future is going to look like. They have, you know, major responsibilities to their families, little brothers and sisters, whatever. So you cannot build an organization that wants to represent working class interests unless it can recruit working class people to its leadership and give them a decent means to, you know, to survive. And the problem is so, so systematic that what you tend to see, and this probably most blatantly in the labor movement, in campaigns like Justice for Janitors or the hotel workers, is the ascent of people like Yale graduates who are brilliant organizers, but who take the place of people coming out of the ranks of the union, you know, rank and file. These are not questions that are resolved by, you know, simply by making a, a demand. They're questions that are faced every day. The movement in Black Lives Matter, I thought, was less a representation of kind of elite kids interacting with, with Black kids than a real coalition of people. A lot of the white people are active, you know, are, are working class people. They may be college graduates, some of them, but they're not, uh, you know, they're not wealthy. It's tremendous to see a constituency, a larger constituency of white youth in this country prepared to fight and in some cases die for the sake of uh, equality and racial uh, justice. I'm so impressed, again, in my tiny microcosm, by how kids of different ethnicities, my kids identify as Mexican, my younger kids, how well everybody gets along. And they share values that are incredibly deep and democratic and, you know, and egalitarian. And that's what uh, needs to be expressed by organizations of the left. As you just suggested, contrary to what you're seeing from, from those youth, so much of the institutional left, or maybe better put, liberal left in this country, including labor, is just paid staff speaking on behalf of millions, but representing, actually substantively representing very few people. This debate occurred in the most, uh, most traumatic way in the late 30s, when the Communist Party supported its members becoming full-time union activists, competing uh, for leadership. Because in the early days of the CIO and the industrial struggle, uh, the actual organizing unit of the struggle were shop committees. This is the same in the October Revolution. You basically had federations of, of shop committees in the different departments or parts of the, of the labor process who met together, you know, fought and argued, and then adopted uh, a path forward. The Communist Party membership grew, grew greatly in the last 30s, but it lost its uh, anchor, its base in rank-and-file uh, struggles. And this critique can, of course, you know, applies so well today. I had somebody I deeply admire, a young guy, 
SEIU organizer, you know, rides freight trains like an old fashioned hobo does from struggle to struggle. And we were drinking one day, and he was just scoffing at the trade union democracy movement in the 70s and groups like Labor Notes that are the continuation of that condition. He really believed that, that the, the union staff should be like samurai representing the workers, but the workers, you know, they should approve or disapprove of decisions, but they had no fundamental leading, leading role. It's incredibly anti-democratic ethos. This is a certain attitude that I've encountered amongst certain labor organizers that the belief in things like union democracy and the labor movement being fundamentally about organizing people to take leadership over their own future, that that's a naivete that people who have done the hard work of actually organizing have been disabused of? Well, lest I be misunderstood. So there's the, the lessons to be learned from the communist movement. But in terms of character, democracy, and how you live your life, the Wobblies have all, always been my model. And they were a model, I don't know in a direct way or not, for SNCC, the, the most heroic organization of the 60s. Bob Moses used to say that a good organizer organizes himself out of a job. He facilitates the emergence of democratic structures, but the local people are the, are, are, are the heroes. And this is a kind of modesty you don't see too often these days. Also the willingness to live you know, a, frugal, a frugal life. But that, of course, depends on the circumstances. When I was 20s and 30s, I didn't go to college so I was 30. I never thought about the idea of a career. If necessary, there were loads of working class jobs. Just go out and do one. Sustain yourself. You know, you live for the fight. This is extremely uh, difficult for a lot of people these days, weighted with, you know, family responsibilities where there aren't lots of semi-skilled jobs that allow you to stay at the point of production and and uh, survive at the you know at the same time but again i'm like a recording a recording made decades ago trying to speak to uh, a reality that i so little understand except i've been one to the belief that generation x is a generation of lions that like somebody once said at the british army they're lions led by jackasses. I'm not talking about AOC and stuff, but I'm talking about uh, uh, the institutional leaders. So many of the trade union chiefs and the uh, uh, so-called liberal, you know, liberal Democrats. Because one thing is clear is that the younger generation, which I think is the largest in American history, is deeply conscious that it will require radical root and branch change to allow them to achieve and their families to achieve any of their dreams, okay? The idea of, you know, accepting reforms is the next step in the ladder and so on. This isn't on the, on, on the table. I find young people to be very intransigent about that. Well, Mike Davis, thank you very much as always. Thanks a lot, Dan. Bye.
Mike Davis is the author of many, many books, including most recently, Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s, co-authored with John Wiener. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that political power, properly so-called, is merely the organized power of one class for oppressing another. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And same on Facebook. And do please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe if you have not done so already. And if it's on iTunes or wherever, also please do leave us a nice review. Rating and reviewing us positively helps introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling your friends about the show, why you like it, why you listen, why they should do the same. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at Patreon. Dot com and make a monthly contribution. Even a few bucks is huge. Mm-hmm.